So um, I, like, uh, I like to consider myself uh, an athletic individual. I uh, grew, up, grew up, what's that? Okay, good to, at least we don't have any competition for our attention tonight. That's good. Um, consider myself an athletic individual. I uh, grew up in a very athletic home. Played four sports in high school. Shouldn't have played one of them. I wasn't a track star by any means. Um, but what starts happening is, and I guess I didn't realize this, at the end of my second youth pastor job on a steady diet of Little Caesars and Mountain Dew, what starts to happen is your body like starts to, it's crazy. If, if you eat a lot and you don't exercise much, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but you, you gain weight. Did you get, were you... I really thought like I was invincible. I thought I could eat six uh, hot and ready's a day, a pound uh, 86 ounces of Mountain Dew, and that I would be fine. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, so my last year youth pastoring in 2004, I put on about 30. And um, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of starting to already like, all right, what's, what's happening here? Maybe, maybe it's just muscle. Maybe I'm putting on muscle. Maybe that's the case. Um, then it kind of became a joke in my, in my house, uh, Heidi and I would be looking at me in the mirror, it sounds strange, but we would do it, and, uh, and she would say, man, uh, not, not looking like you used to there, Mark, you know, and we kind of, I would kind of get, ha ha, that's funny, you know, but inside, I'm, but inside, I'm like, okay, like, but for whatever reason, like, I didn't do anything about it, so for a couple more years, uh, just kept doing my thing, Mountain Dew, pizza, uh, eating late at night. Um, right after, in fact, Heidi and I looked at, at each other in the mirror, I pounded a large blizzard, you know, so <laughs> clearly it wasn't affecting me much. Uh, then, for whatever reason, things aligned, and uh, I was asked to, uh, to pastor Virginia Kerr's uh, wedding. She's a, a News 4 anchor. And, uh, you guys know Virginia Kerr? Uh, okay, good. Anyway, I, that was like my, like, that was my name drop there. I was, you know, hoping to feel important. Didn't work well. Anyway, she's on TV, which makes me a super baller. Anyway... <laughs> Uh, so I, I pastored her wedding, and then a week after they got back from, uh, from their honeymoon, she uh, put some pictures of the wedding on the news. And so a friend had told me about it, and so I, I TVO'd the, uh, the, the later news. Remember it like it was yesterday. I see this picture of myself on TV, and I'm not talking about the, you know, they say TV puts on whatever. I literally thought to myself, do I seriously look like that? Like, is that... Like, what happened, right? Well, the reality is, is like it happened two and a half years ago. But for whatever reason, in that moment, like, all, I was just, I was overwhelmed with seriously. And so literally, that afternoon, I started like a complete diet and like weight plan. And like literally, for the next year, I worked on getting myself back down to kind of where I had been. But it's so intriguing to me, and I've thought about this so much since then. Why was it that all of a sudden I was interested in change when I had been the same for multiple years? Like what was surrounding that event where I went from uncaring and continuing to digress to now I just, now I just want to change everything about me? So it's, it sparked a lot of interesting thoughts in my mind, more questions, and I want to ask you a couple questions if I could. For you, when you examine when you change, what for you causes it? Okay? Now, I'm guessing like that you're not going to be able to answer this question right now. This is like this is more of a take-home right, assignment. 
But I want you to consider over the next couple of days the factors that go in to when you change something about yourself. A thought, an action, a deed. Is it uh, normally like when people encourage you to do something? Is it when there's some a factor that you realize on your own? What is it for you that causes change? A second question is this, and this is a yes, no, and so maybe you can answer tonight. We'll have everyone raise their hand or not. Uh, when you come to moments of change and you desire it, like you long for it in your heart, you're like, I desperately want to do it. Do you ever feel like you just can't muster up the strength or the energy? Like, do you ever feel like, I, I know I want to, but for some reason, deep down inside, I just, I can't, I just can't do it. I mean, I, I keep, it seems, trying and trying, but I, I can't make myself energized to do it. I can't get focused on it. I would imagine that many of you have felt that before, right? That's one of the most disheartening feelings we can sense ever in our existence. Is wanting something, but for some reason, just not able to muster it up. The reason why these questions are so pertinent for us tonight. The writer of Hebrews has built 10 chapters worth of teaching, building doctrine, teaching the supremacy of Christ in all things, teaching why Jesus is so much better than all of these other things. And tonight, we come to a major crossroads where the contention of the writer of Hebrews is, all of this teaching means something. It should change all of us all the time. It's not just words. It's teaching about the supremacy of Christ that should shift everything in our being. And so tonight we come to a massive crossroads. And the only question that remains is for you and I, will it change us? Or will it just be teaching? Will it just be words in a book that's called the Bible? Or will all of a sudden, even tonight, these words take life? So let's answer that question tonight by digging in. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to deal with a, a lengthier portion of Hebrews. I know that worries many of you. Um, that doesn't mean we're going to uh, go longer necessarily. I just want uh, to summarize some of these things. It'll feel a little bit different. Uh, some of these uh, thoughts we've examined before, some will be uh, very new. So I want to start here uh, by reading the first section of Scripture here in Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I'm just going to go ahead and say this. What seems like a normal piece of scripture, these four verses are unbelievable. But let's start here. We've talked a lot about the repeated sacrifice of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. What we haven't talked a lot about is the daily routine of the priest. Can I share this with you? Uh, every morning and every night, a one-year-old male lamb would be sacrificed. And then after that, a food offering would be made. One-tenth of some of the finest flour would be sacrificed as a food offering. Then just after that, a fourth of a hin of wine, which makes me sound incredibly smart. It just means a fourth of a gallon. All right, A fourth of a hin of wine would also be given. That's every morning 
and every night. Oh, and by the way, before those sacrifices are made, a, bur a burning of incense offering would be made in the morning, and after the evening sacrifices, another burning of, in uh, of incense. Oh, and by the way, the high priest every day would also have to give a food offering. So it's one thing to talk about the repeated sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. It's another thing to see in verse 11 the repeated sacrifice, these priests at service, day in and day out, lamb, food, wine, incense, food, all of this rhythm, incredibly significant. But the most significant piece of these four verses is this concept of a posture. Love the word. We can never underestimate the power of posture. Can I get an amen, right? Um, there's something about when you get married that you just start to learn each other's posture. Uh, one of my favorites as a husband is the back turn to my wife. Do any of you guys know what that means? Scratch my back. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't have to say anything. Literally two nights ago, we had some friends over. My wife and I are in the kitchen. I say nothing. My posture is back to my wife. And she inherently knows that means to give a scratch. This is amazing, right? For those of you looking for a wife, right, find a godly one and teach her that gesture. It's amazing, right? It's one of my leaderships, uh, leadership uh, capabilities. Now, uh, 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 postures, though, they have power sometimes in the negative sense. Uh, when you're talking to a friend and, like, you're really engaged, you're sharing your life story, you're pouring out your deepest, darkest sin secret, and they're looking out the window with, like, their, their, their chin in their hand, like, you know, not, seeing, not interested at all. Their posture is telling you, I don't care. And so in your heart, you're like, well, I don't care either. Posture is so incredibly powerful for us. Uh, lastly, I, I always was one of those guys where I never thought I could be wooed by my five-year-old daughter and her postures. And then I had her, or we had her, my wife and I. And there's something about that little girl, and this is tough for me, but when she, like, puts herself, positions herself in, like, that little girly pose and, like, is looking up at me like, Daddy, you know, and she just does that eye thing. You know when she wants something, right? And, and, and her new thing is like she'll come down in the middle of the night after a bad dream and she'll want to get in bed with us because she's, you know, she says she's had a bad dream. And she can just stand there and just look at me, Daddy, can I please get in bed with you? I've had a bad dream. I mean, I, she doesn't have to say a word. And I'm just like, yes, like come, please. You know, I love you. I don't want to be one of those dads, right? Posture, <laughs> right? Posture is so incredibly important. So there's three postures that are talked about in these uh, four verses. The first, uh, go, back to, go back to my last verse, buddy. Go back to 11 through 14. Thank you. 11 through 14, there we go. And every priest stands daily at his service. So the first posture talked about is these human priests are standing. We've talked about it many times. The reason why they are standing is, as we've just described, is the sacrifice is never done. There's only one seat in the tent, the tabernacle, or, the, uh, or the, um, the temple, and that's the mercy seat. Outside of that, there is no sitting for the priest, because they're constantly giving sacrifice. On the other side, verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, we've gone over this before in Hebrews, he sat down at the right hand of God. They stand, he sits, because the work is done. Powerful posture. It's one thing to stand in continuing service. It's another thing to sit because your job is done. Now this got me thinking, and you've already seen the first slide. This has got me thinking. The other postures that Jesus has on the earth. 
We know that he's, after the ascension, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. But I'm interested in his other postures while he's here on the earth. Aren't you interested too? Even if you're not, here we go. I, I, I think there's six of them, all right? So let's put up the first one. From John chapter 4, I love this. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. So one of the first postures we see in the ministry of Jesus is, uh, next slide, he's sitting and relationally connecting. The Christ has a lot to do. He's got a world to save, sinners to redeem, but somehow in his time, he has made it possible to sit next to this woman and relationally connect. One of the postures in the Bible I love of Jesus is the picture of him taking time to ask questions spend intentional moments engaging a woman that is in desperate need of peace and comfort. And so he says, I have water for you that if you drink, you'll never go thirsty again. Jesus is sitting. Next slide. The second posture comes from Luke chapter 6. This is a, a lot of fun here. And he came down with them in verse 17 and stood on a level place. I love the, uh, the carpenter reference there. With a great cl- a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, uh, Judea and Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. The next posture of Jesus is him standing in boldness, empowered, proclaiming God's word, healing diseases. The standing is the place, in this case, of prominence, of authority. I not only have authority to teach, but I have authority to cast out demons, and not just that, but to heal diseases. So Jesus stands in authority. Love it. This next one is a lot of fun. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, many of you guys are aware of the story. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by, by the waves, but he was asleep. This is many of your favorite postures. You're like, I relate to this. Like, I love he sleeps, I see, I, I've been telling you all along, like Jesus sleeps, right? Well, well, I want you to get a picture of this. I think many of us think that somehow Jesus is like on the Titanic and he's like in the inner room sleeping, right, resting. This is like open boat here, right? Open boat, open storm. The disciples think they're going to die. And the picture is Jesus is chilling there sleeping. Why? Because he's resting in this faith and trust and a sovereign father who has it all mapped out. And let me say this. Jesus knows that he's not going to die in the storm. You guys see what I'm saying? He knows why he came to die. He knows he's going to die on a cross. And so he knows that a storm, it ain't no thing. And so you guys know the story. What happens? The disciples are like, you got to wake up now. And so he wakes up and he calms the storm. And the disciples say, even the winds and the waves obey him. Powerful moment. So he sleeps. Uh, next slide. John chapter 13. Then he poured water into a basin. And began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. His next posture is kneeling. You want to tell me another world religion that pictures its Messiah kneeling? Like, like tell me what that religion is. Give me, a, give me an indicator. Will we find any other God or any other religion that's portraying 
their Messiah, their Savior, whatever they claim Him to be, kneeling in service, embracing service. I think we romanticize this picture sometimes. And then on the same token, I feel like sometimes we don't get the power of the fact that He washes their feet just before His death as a semblance of saying, like, look, this is why I came. I came to serve. And so guess what? When I leave, I'm leaving you to serve too. Fifth posture, next slide. Matthew chapter 26. We've studied this passage many times, including last week. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So his fifth posture is face down. It's unbelievable, isn't it, to think of the Christ not just standing in authority, but kneeling and serving and face down pleading. And we have at times the audacity to not follow suit. To think that those displays of humility would be too much. If it was too much, then Christ wouldn't have done it. The last and most powerful uh, posture Acts 5, uh, after all of uh, the life of Christ, he's ascended. When they had brought them, they set them before the council. This is Peter and the apostles, the scripture says. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, which I just really appreciate. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, I love the unifying act here, We must obey God rather than men. Can we just just celebrate that line in the scripture for a moment? Their lives are on the line. They're before the council, okay? Stephen, the first martyr, is getting ready to be stoned here in just a little bit. And they're saying, we're not here to please you. We're here to please God. And look what Peter says in the apostles. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. The last posture of Christ is hanging. Some would say by nails. But friends, those who are doctrinally and theologically sound would say hanging by obedience. It was the willing sacrifice of Christ. He could have at any point, just as he was tempted to do, pull himself down from the cross. A nail couldn't keep him there. It was obedience and love, my friends. Right? The postures of Jesus, super significant in these six. Powerful. But our passage shows one more powerful. Put back up verse 11 through 14. And every priest in verse 11, verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down and look at this, verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's the first Ottoman, right? Like there it is. Jesus in victory, in power, with all of his enemies, who once judged him, though he was innocent. You see? Jesus stood as the willing sacrifice, face to face with Pilate, face to face with the high priest, face to face with the Sanhedrin, and though he was innocent, they judged him. But guess what? There's a day coming when all of those who are on the judging side will now stand judged, and they'll be the footstool. Uh, This uh, gets me thinking about victorious postures, because this is like the victorious posture, isn't it? Jesus 
you kind of get this picture of him reclining in all of his enemies, like as this massive Ottoman. Uh, just a quick question. What, what's your victory pose? Like, what do you do when no one's looking and you're just really excited about something? You know what I'm saying? Is it, is it the fist pump for you, right? Like, is it just the, the in the air, no one's looking, but I'm super, you know, like yesterday when you were watching the game and it seemed like there was a ray of hope there in the bottom of the ninth, right? And yada, yada right? Like, what, what did you do? What's your victory posture? Uh, for me, one of the most amazing times, real quick, uh, my senior year of high school, uh, we were playing in the first round of the playoffs, mud bowl, weren't expected to win. We came into this awesome stadium, beat this team, we're all muddy, and someone took a picture and all of us like had our helmets in the air, and we were like, it was, it was just yelling, uh, who knows what we were saying. It was just awesome. It was like this victory posture. We can't even begin to fathom this victory posture. Seated, enemies as, as a footstool, the victory of the Christ in full effect. Amazing. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This victory posture isn't just for once, my friends, it is for an eternity. Powerful, powerful stuff. Let's go on to the next uh, section of scripture. We'll read the whole thing and then we'll break it down here in verse 15 to 18. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. And after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness, uh, forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. Now something amazing is happening here. The writer of Hebrews has already quoted Jeremiah 21, or Jeremiah 31 rather. Jeremiah 31 is an Old Testament prophecy of the new covenant. The new covenant is what we've been learning and teaching and honing in on this entire last few chapters. So I want to show you, if I can, uh, where he quoted this from Jeremiah uh, 31. This may be hard to see. Work with me. I'll try to read it expressively. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. That's been our big concept. The Old Testament man is a covenant breaker. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. The new covenant. The prophetic uh, new covenant. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The question is, why is the writer of Hebrews going again to Jeremiah 31? His Jewish readers are struggling, taking this teaching and making it life. They're struggling hearing the words and allowing it to change their hearts. So what does he say here? Your own prophet that you love and adore, Jeremiah, you love that guy. He prophesied that the new covenant would be fulfilled in one coming, in Christ. So if your own prophet was talking about it and prophesying about it, and remember what he said at the beginning of verse 15, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by God, then why would you ever turn away? Your prophet said it, it's come true, he will remember your sins no more. Powerful text in Jeremiah. Put back up my section of scripture. 
Then he adds in verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. In verse 18, I've kind of become obsessed with, for there is forgiveness of these, for where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now the image that I get in my mind is this. I think um, gold chains and um, tattoos have a little bit ruined something, although it's incredibly powerful at other times. Anytime I see a cross as a tattoo or a gold chain, uh, my first question uh, for those folks is always like, so, so you know, why the cross? What's up with the cross? Uh, for some people, it's extremely significant. It means something so much on them, and I appreciate that, certainly. For others, though, it's like, oh, you know, like, dude, it's a cross, man. Like, that, you know. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, I know what a cross is, but, like, why? Why are you wearing it? Dude, it's just my jam. I mean, look at this. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it affects my ensemble here, right? Like, check this, right? If you really believe that one offering of sin reaches to the depth of your iniquity and washes you clean, then something that unfortunately has become cliche should always hold, hold power, and that's the symbol of the cross. I'm serious. I was in uh, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. You know that Christ Redeemer statue that you see in the movie Rio? You know what I'm saying? Have you seen, like, I've seen the real thing. It's beautiful. Like, for me, I sit up there, and even in a, in a picture like that, and I just see this, you know, kind of this crazy statue up there. I see the cross, and I'm instantly reminded of no repeated sacrifice and the power of that symbol. There's so much power in the symbol because there's no more offering in, of sin. If our symbol had to go back to the high priestly order, it would be like an altar, and it would just keep coming. But one cross wipes it all. So I don't care whether it's this cross, I don't care whether it's a chain, anytime believers see the precious cross, it should be for us the reminder of once for all, it's done. It shouldn't be cliche. We should never get tired of it. It should always be on our minds. But unfortunately, you've seen it portrayed in some cheesy settings, and so because of that, you look at crosses and you lower its significance. And I don't care who is defaming it, my friends, in my heart I will fame it, Right? And so tonight, even as we look on the cross and as we think on the cross, celebrate what the writer here is doing in escalating its power. Next section of scripture here, of verse 19 and 20. Are therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, I'm leaving that as a cliffhanger. What I've done with these verses if, is I've tried to kind of sum them up for you. So I've rewritten them and kind of reordered them into this phrase, and let's kind of break this down. The blood of Christ has torn the curtain in half. Let's talk about that. Some of you are really excited because all of a sudden we're talking about drapery. Not quite the same uh, idea here. In the temple, there is this massive curtain that separates the most holy place in the temple, in all of the other pieces of the temple. The reason why that curtain was there was because there were only a select few, namely the high priest, who could enter within that curtain. And so over and over in Scripture, we see this power, and including at the death of Jesus, where this massive curtain literally tears into the Scripture records. And the whole image of that picture is that because the temple has, uh, because the curtain has torn in two in the temple, now all of a sudden people have access to the most holy place of God. 
by the blood of uh, Christ, the uh, curtain is torn in half. And because of that, look at this, we can confidently enter the holy places. No more shying back, shrinking back. Because of what Christ has done and because of him, the high priest, has gone into the holy places. Do you get the picture of what he's saying? Come on. I'm in here. I paved the way. Now you follow me. Let's go. You can experience the fullness of the presence of God because of what I have done. Now, here's our crossroads. All this teaching, all these words, and it could just be something in a book. But the writer is getting ready to plow through some intense stuff. Let me ask you this. Uh, when you were in school, wasn't it incredibly fulfilling to learn stuff and then see how it got implemented? Like reading and writing, for example, right? Like when you learned to read and write, and then you like saw a menu and you could read it, wasn't that amazing? You know, you're like, you're like this is awesome. I learn stuff, and then I implement. This is beautiful. On the flip side, doesn't chemistry just make you angry? Unless you're, unless you're like, a, like a doctor or something. There were so many of those, uh, you know, so much of the subject matter in chemistry. I was like, I'm going into ministry. You know what I'm saying? Like, why do I ever even need to look at this textbook? And all the chromosome stuff, like, God made it. Like, I, that's enough for me, you know? But they don't take that on tests, you know? Like, there's something so frustrating. There's something so frustrating about learning something and not seeing its implementation. Something so encouraging about learning something and then being able to put it in practice. Are you with me? That's exactly what has been happening. Ten chapters worth. Listen, ten chapters worth of teaching and doctrine and understanding so that now he can pull the trigger on life change. All of this should do something. Look at this in uh, verse 21. Let us Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The let us is emphatic. All of this teaching and then he says, let's go. Why would we ever wait then? If we have this access to God, then let's go for it. Let's pursue him. Let's seek him. Let's not shrink back in fear. We have a true heart. I want to talk about that for a second. A true heart and what he's talking about here is a heart that's not compartmentalized. Is a heart that's not burdened and shameful because of past regret. A true heart is one who every piece of them knows that they are a sinner in desperate need of grace and knows that Christ has sprinkled them clean. Clean their conscience. And so the true heart says, I have to run to you. I have nowhere else to go. That's what he's saying. Let us go. Let us go now. There's no reason to wait. There's no reason for you to sink back. You can boldly do it. So you know what? Boldly go for it. So why do I see so much pitter-patter? Why is there so much tiptoeing? Why do we enter into congregational times and times when you're alone and we're like tiptoeing around all of this? I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. In Christ, we boldly go to God. We boldly celebrate who He is. We boldly come to Him and say, God, here I am again. Will you use me? Thank you for who you are. The picture of verse uh, 23, though, gives us the other picture. 
let us hold fast. Not just let us draw near, but let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. You see what he's saying? He's like dropping the hammer right now. And, and it, let me guarantee you this, as he's writing, he's not like, and let us, let us draw near and hope for the best, you know? Like, let's just, just, let's just approach the throne of God. Like, I picture him fist hitting the table, whether a scribe was writing it or not. Still, maybe a scribe made it better, right? Like, let us draw near and let us hold fast. Why is this significant? Why would he say this? He's saying, look, I know it's easy to change for a time because you get all fired up, but that's not my point. I know it's easy to say, oh yes, this teaching makes sense. Christ, you, you must be the Messiah. You must be all that we need and all that we are. He's saying, no, no, no. I'm not interested in people seeing teaching and then giving Jesus a high five and then turning their backs on him a week later. The power of what Christ has done is he can take wretched sinners like you and I who have completely turned our back to the gospel and he can redeem us. I mean, he can take us, these people who have completely denied the name of Christ, he can pull us back and now allow us to draw near without wavering. That is a beautiful picture of what Christ has done. And how does he end? He reminds them. It's because he's faithful. You want to try to sit unwavering by yourself? Good luck with that. He's the one who's faithful. He's the one who's unwavering. So you sit in that. Now, I don't know about you, and maybe not, maybe just me, but I'm stirred, man, even now. Like, there's times like in this one I see in the Scripture where I'm thinking about all of the chapters of Hebrews, the supremacy of Christ, and now the response to that. So my question is this. So what should be my posture then? If I'm victorious because of Christ, if all of these things are mine because of Christ, then what should be the believer's posture? I'll tell you what it's not is our enemies are a footstool. And unfortunately, my friends, that has become for many the Christian posture. My enemies, oh Jesus, we're victorious in Christ. And I know his enemies are going to be his footstool. Will be his footstool. You see? And so Christians, though, take that teaching and they forget that Jesus says, bless those who persecute you. Those who hate you. You love those people. And so our posture is not seeing our enemies as a footstool, my friends. It's loving our enemies. Being gracious to our enemies. Listen, can I just say something real quick? Because I feel like this is so applicable all the time to the Christian church. Listen, I know you got some frustrations with some people who come to Matthias' lot. We're great people and all, right? I mean, we're, we're actually pretty awesome people. I mean, God's done a work in the people here. But we're in desperate need of God's grace. We screw up. And I know you got some frustrations with some people probably here. And unfortunately, probably some unsaid frustrations. Not dealing with it in a biblical manner. You're letting your heart get bittered. You should have said something about three months ago. Now you feel like it's too late because they're going to uh, you know, say that you should have done that three months ago. And so you know what ends up happening? You end up looking at people in your church and you think to yourself, that's my enemy. What have we done? When for a second has the body of Christ turned into our enemies and i'm not saying like you look at this whole room you're like oh yeah i got like 200 enemies up in here you know what i'm saying i'm not saying that but maybe there's one or two they said that they wronged me they didn't do that right i thought they should have done that they didn't do that i, I mean i've never talked to them about it because that would be too biblical but 
right? So what should be our posture then? Next slide. There it is. Our posture now as a victorious Christian is the exact same postures that Jesus embraced on this, on this earth. Sitting. Relationally investing in people. Intentionally interested in their life. Taking significant amounts of time just to sit, to shut your yapper and listen. Tell me what you're struggling with. Tell me how I can be praying for you. Tell me your story, the simplest of all questions. You want to follow a posture? You know what? It's time to start sitting in humility and listening. The Bible says we need to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Slow to become angry. We need to become way better listeners, my friend. How about standing? I know, I know many of you, even after all the scripture we just looked at, you still feel like a coward. There is no cowardice in Christ. There's humility. There's not cowardice. It's Christ in us, boldly proclaiming the gospel, holding fast to our confession, unwavering. So for some of you, you feel like, I mean, I just, the sitting part, I enjoy, I can sit, I can ask a whole bunch of questions, I never have to say anything. For you people, it's time to learn how to stand and proclaim. Boldly confess. This is what Christ has done in me. This third one you really like. Sleeping, yes, I've been waiting for this. This is my jam. I, thank you, God, you know. No, the whole concept of Christ sleeping is resting in his sovereignty. You've got a plan. Every morning when I wake up, I say, God, to you be the glory. Your will be done and not mine. So you know what, God? Throw my plans out of the window. I want your plan. Show me. Help me see it. Help me live in it. So sleeping isn't literally becoming lazy and a glutton. Seeking the things of Christ. How about this, my friends? Kneeling. Embracing service. Are you the person who walks in a house and instantly looks at the best chair that you can sit at? Or are you the one that waits till everyone eats, everyone sits down, and then because of a genuine true heart, then you sit and then you eat. And if there's not a seat, it's cool. You'll take the carpet, you'll stand against the wall. It doesn't matter. If we're to follow the example and the postures of Jesus, we're to kneel, embrace services. How about this one, face down? Yeah, I'm just really not into that thing. Problem is, Christ, in his moment of great anguish, is where? Face down. And what is the, what is the image of face down? I have nothing left. I am in full worship, in full adornment. Here I am. Well, that would just be weird, really? In ancient times, any time a king would even enter the building, everyone would fall down on their face in awe of who they were, right? And yet Christians, maybe we've got this standing thing down, but this face down thing down, now that's just too humble. And lastly, uh, we changed the, the hanging because uh, what Christ has done on the cross is done, and instead we've taken what Stephen did in his persecution and being stoned, Gazing up, you remember right before he's stoned, he looks up to heaven. And he's stoned to death. And his last words are, forgive them. The same words of Jesus, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's gazing up. I am a willing sacrifice. My life is a sacrifice. Everything I am is a sacrifice. And I am willing. 
So God, do whatever you will do, even if it means my death. What I'm asking you tonight is, which of these postures are you struggling with? As you look at these six, the victorious life of Christ, the postures that we're to embrace, revealing what Christ has done in us, let us hold fast, let us stand firm, let us be unwavering. Which of these six? As you examine your life, are you just struggling with? Now, last thing I have to say is this. What if God could change it? What if God could take your hating heart towards someone and because of what he's done, all of a sudden soften it? What if the gospel was powerful enough to take this thing in you that hates talking to people where you feel like all you got is something to say. You'll never. What if the gospel was powerful enough to literally close this mouth and just make you, what if the gospel was powerful enough to do that? What if the gospel could literally take this heart that is all about you and make you a sacrifice? What if it was possible? What the writer of Hebrews is saying is, it is, that's the truth and the power and the reality of what Christ has done. So let us go. Let's draw near, let's repent, let's seek Christ, let's stand in boldness, and let's celebrate our victory, because one day he's coming back, and his enemies will be a footstool, and until then, we embrace the postures of Christ. Let's stand together. I understand after teaching through uh, ten and a half chapters of Hebrews now why he talked about the old and the new covenant over and over. There may have been times for you where you're like, okay, we get it. But it's for a moment like this where he asks, are you sure you got it? Are you sure you understand Because if you do, then we go to him. And so use this time, my brothers and sisters, as a time to examine your heart, as a time to plead for an unwavering, true heart. But together tonight, let us draw near to God.